Well, this morning, I believe the Lord has a great word for us. I want to read to you just Joel chapter 2, verse 25. Joel chapter 2, verse 25, a minor prophet. And it says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promise. Lord, that we can hold on to your promise. You know, God, you are able. You are able to cause the one who reaps to even overtake the one who is sowing. Because you, Father God, to you it is natural to see the unnatural. It is natural to see the supernatural. And therefore, Father, today I thank you that your supernatural power is at work within our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I love that promise. It gives us so much hope, especially when you are living in this day and this age and you feel like so much has gone um, away. So much has been wasted. So many years, for many of us, the older you get, the more you think about some of the things that could have been and you feel like the years have been wasted. But here God promises to us that He will restore to us those years that have been wasted, even if it is because of our own doing at times. So today we're going to look into this mystery. It's a mystery of an amazing promise. It is a mystery because restoring years or any kind of time, for that matter, is impossible. Yet God's promise through this prophet Joel is that He would restore back to you those lost years. He would restore back to you your wasted years. So we understand that health can be restored, money can be restored, prosperity or, or property can be restored, broken down cars can be restored, yeah, paintings can be restored, old houses are being restored all the time, relationships can even be restored. But one thing that can never be restored is, of course, time. Time flies and it never returns. Years pass by, and we never get them back, ever. Moments come and go, and they're gone forever. Yet, so strangely, God here promises the opposite. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. This is the most fascinating, fascinating thing about this book called Joel. He's the prophet Joel that wrote this book, of course, and it was always... um, Interesting to me because I read it and I don't always quite understand what he meant. But thank God, you know, we can look at things exegetical and we can see it within its historical principle. We can see it within its literal principle. We can see it within its synthesis principle. We can see it in a practical principle. And um, as we do so, as we zoom out and we see it as a whole, God speaks to us in, in great and inspiring ways. But it is fascinating because it plays out in three parallel eras all at the same time. This book plays out in three timelines all at the same time. Firstly, it is the actual history of the Israelites when God judged them. He called them. After He judged them, He called them to repentance. And then He restores to them everything that they had ever lost during those years of judgment. 
So really, if they lost X amount of years of harvests, God said, okay, now I'm going to restore to you back everything that was stolen to you over those years. And so God exponentially increases their harvest to the point where they made back absolutely everything that they lost over time. And this is God's promise to you and I, that He will make back to you absolutely everything that was lost over time. I'm reminded of those who are dressed in white robes and that are part of the dead at this point. But Revelation says that their voices are crying out saying, God, when are you going to avenge our blood? When are you going to do this? And God says, just a little longer and you will see. You see, God will, God will absolutely in this life or the next give you everything that seems to have been lost in the past. So firstly, it is an actual history of the Israelites when God judged them, called them to repentance, and when they do repent, He multiplies back to them everything that they've lost. But secondly, this very same book, at this very same time, is not just a historic book, but also a prophetic book. This very same historical account is also an account of the end times. The Apostle Peter preaches on this out of this book while he preaches the end times in Acts chapter 2 verse 17 and he says it shall come to pass in the last days says God that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh where does he get this from this is the book of Joel in the end days in the last times he says let's quote Joel I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So we see it's, his, it's a historical book. It's a prophetic book. But at the same time, thirdly, these prophecies are to be seen as timeless doctrines for you and I today as we sit here in a postmodern culture. During a pandemic in the West... In Schaumburg, or whichever neighboring city you may come from. See, these prophecies are to be applied to our postmodern age. Uh, the MacArthur Study Bible comments on this book, and it says this, I quote, The message of Joel is timeless, forming doctrine which should be repeated and applied in every age and in every generation. Now, there are three parts to this book. First, it's God summons a locust plague, a locust plague, and a drought on their land because they were in sin. Secondly, God then calls them to repent of that sin that initiated this plague that will come upon them. And thirdly, after they evidently repented, God restores them back as He gives them three promises. And I want to give you these three promises because these three promises, as we just saw, isn't just historical but prophetic, but it's also applicable to us right now. And we need to apply these promises to our situation and our circumstances today. Okay? So here are these three promises. First promise is found in Joel chapter 2, verse 21 through 27. God here promises that they will receive material restoration through this divine healing of the land. So suddenly there will be opportunity for them to farm again. And suddenly, they, it won't be as dry anymore. And suddenly, whatever they sow will produce a multiplied harvest. <clears throat> so he says in the first promise that materially they will be restored 
back everything that they lost in previous years. Promise number two was found in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. Here God <clears throat> declares that they will be experiencing a spiritual restoration, not just a materialistic re uh, uh, restoration, but also a spiritual rest restoration. How? Through God pouring His Spirit out upon all flesh. And the third promise that God gives is in Joel 3, verse 1 through 21. Here God declares a national restoration through the divine judgment of the unrighteous. Hear me. This is how God restored nations. How? By, by judging the enemies of that nation and by judging the unrighteous people in that nation. <clears throat> now let's look. If this book of Joel was to be applied to our lives today and to our times, if it would be applied to us today, then God is saying to you and I this. If you repent of your sin, then God will restore your society. We hear it elsewhere. If you humble yourselves and pray, I will heal your land, right? But here in the book of Joel, he repeats a similar prophecy and promise. And he says, if you would repent of your sin. And here he is not referring to these newly designed sins designed by today's woke culture. But if you would repent of the scriptural sins that you commit against God, then God will restore your society. Then, after that, after you've repented, He says that God will breathe over His church and there will be an outpouring of His Holy Spirit upon all the people across this nation. I believe this is going to be true. And thirdly, after you have repented and have returned to the Lord, there will be national restoration. There will be national restoration. How? According to the prophecy of Joel, we can assume that godly judges will be raised up and will bring to justice the unrighteous evildoer. This is how God has always restored a nation, by raising up God-fearing judges in the nation. You can go read through the book of Judges and you'll see yourself. This is God's doing, raising up righteous judges who will bring to justice the wicked rebel. Now, first, we are going to dig into this incredible promise God made about, this is about 3,000 years ago, is when Joel lived. We assume that he lived about 700 before Christ. We do not know much of Joel's life. Nevertheless, we have his prophecies and, uh, from which we learn about Israel being judged by God for their unrepentant sin. This is a pattern for us to consider. So let me read to you Joel chapter 1 verse 1 through 4, and let's follow the process so that we can get a clear picture of what God is doing. Verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, says, hear this, O elders, speaking to the leaders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Now remember, when they addressed the leaders, when they addressed the elders of the day, they weren't just addressing the pastor's and the elders in the church, because the, spiritual, the religious leaders were also the political leaders of the day. And so here he's calling out to them, and he says, Hear this, O leaders, O elders, 
And listen, all inhabitants of the land, has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. And let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. In other words, this is for every generation and every age. Tell them what the gnawing locust has left. The swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. The immediate meaning of this promise is very clear to us in Scripture. In the time of the prophet Joel, people of Israel were extremely rebellious. They drifted from God. Life became easy, like it is almost here in the West. And they just drifted from God because other things grabbed their attention. Other things filled their hearts. They started loving the things of the world instead of the one who gave it to them. And in this time, Prophet Joel, God's people had suffered a complete destruction of everything they had, of the entire harvest through these swarms of locusts that came through their land. And if you read chapter 1 in full, we don't have time for it, you'll see it is actually articulated because it's a book that speaks of history and of future prophecy. Those locusts are listed as military men. And they, they, they came across their harvests, across their crops in, in, forma, in formation, all within their position. And it says they didn't even jump on top of each other. They just ran across and combed through their lands and ate everything. And whatever was left, the second wave of locusts came and ate that. And whatever was left after that, the third wave of locusts came and just destroyed absolutely everything. But not just were the harvests destroyed. It was totally dry. They had a drought. But secondly, when your harvest is destroyed completely in year one, you'll have no seed to plant in year two. So they had a continuous problem at this point. And for four consecutive years, the harvests were completely wiped out. God's people were brought to their knees in more than one way. So let's go from where this judgment came upon them. It was sent by God. And now let's see in Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, it says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. With fasting, focus, with weeping, sorrow, and mourning, a contrite heart. He says in verse 13, So rent your heart. And not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. God was looking for something sincere. God was looking for something real. He wasn't looking for action. He was looking for heart. And actions that flowed from the heart. That has always been our God. Now assuming that they repented. As God demanded for them to. We hear that God follows this terrifying portion of scripture. Where they were completely depleted and destroyed, followed by calling them to, a, to repentance. And now, here we see in Joel chapter 2, 25 and 26, he says, So I will restore you, or I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. 
the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. My, my great army, which I sent among you, you shall uh, eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. So the locust did not eat the years, even though he said, I'll give back to you years. The locusts did not eat the years, but they ate the fruit, those years of labor provided. So in other words, what happened here is everything they worked for, gone. Something, a lot of people find that today. Everything they've worked for over a long period, gone. But it doesn't have to happen just today. It's happened throughout time. It's always true for those who have lost everything that they have worked for over time. So the meaning of this restoration of the years must be the restoration of those harvests. And therefore God is saying, I will restore to you every harvest you have lost, come back to you. And I will bring it to you. This is the way that God can give back the fruits of wasted years. I mean, Amos chapter 9, 13 says it so clearly. Amos, another minor prophet, he says this, the time will come. Can you say the time will come? The time will come, come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. The grain and the grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. So which years are the years in our lives that have been wasted years. You might say, well, you know, not too many years of my life has been wasted. I don't have too many regrets. Or you might say, I do. But you might think about the wrong years. So I want to make sure that we actually think about what would God be pointing to when He said, those are the wasted years I will restore, you, restore to you. <clears throat> And then we're going to look at what are we to do when we see wasted years in our past. Like, what, how do you respond to that? I remember going through a time in my life. I think it was yesterday. And, uh, and uh, you think about past years and you're just like, hey, you know what? I, I might as well laugh because I f- absolutely feel like crying right now. And so I listened to this Piper sermon and he says the exact same thing. He says, sometimes... It's good. What you do is you just absolutely weep before God. And then like David, you get back up and you wash your face. And you put a little bit of gel in your hair or as he did oil on his face. And then you just move on. You just move on. That's called faithfulness, actually. And that's what he's called us to do. That glorifies God. The one who can get up and say, I'm moving on. And I'm grabbing onto these promises. God, as I do, you will restore, you will restore to me absolutely everything that has been lost for your glory. So we see that the years that have been wasted need to be responded to. And here are those years, and this is how to respond to them. So the years that the locusts have eaten. Those wasted years are, number one, the unregenerate years 
of your life, the unregenerate years of your life, all of your BC years, <laughs> all of those years you lifted up outside of Christ, these are the years of unbelief, the years of no faith. So you and I, we don't know one person that would ever say, man, I wish I came to Christ much later in my life. Nobody says that. I mean, you and I, we know everybody who is truly born again, a, true, a person who truly loves the truth. Every single one of those people always say, man, I wish. I know I got saved when I was seven, but man, I wish I got saved seven years before that. You know, <laughs> everybody wants to be saved sooner than what they did get saved because they know the years outside of Christ are wasted years. Isn't that good to know? In Christ, we are no longer wasting our years because the life we have right now will count eternally. We are not wasting our faithful years of faith in Christ. We are saved through faith in Him for the purpose of being faithful to Him and therefore your life is not wasted if you are faithful to Christ. Can you imagine the rich young ruler? Here he comes to Jesus, and this man had everything. He was even young, so he had time. His wasted years were ahead of him. And Jesus, he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, what you have to do is take everything that you've accumulated for yourself, sell it and give it to the poor. And then he gives him this fantastic invitation, and he says, come and be my disciple. Come and follow me. He would have been one of the 12 or 13th. But he couldn't. Why not? Because he loved money. Couldn't do it. So the Bible says he walked away sad, right? As far as we know, he never followed Christ. And if that is true, do you realize that none of what that man, that very successful man accomplished... None of what he accomplished throughout his life now matters in any way, except as a warning to you and me. I don't know about you, but I don't want my life to be a warning. <laughs> I want my life to be your warning. <laughs> I want my life to be your inspiration, right? And here's this man, known throughout the ages of time as the warning to all. None of what he accomplished mattered. It was all wasted years. So if you have yet to come to Christ, this is my encouragement to you. Do not allow one more day to pass without repenting toward God and putting faith in Christ. That's what the apostle preached. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Because until you do that, every single year of your life will be wasted. Number two, the years the locusts have eaten are the years of your life. There are years of fruit, fruitlessness. Fruitless years. Just years that you look back and you go, nothing came of it. Absolutely nothing. But how do you measure if nothing came of the year that you had? How do you actually determine that was a fruitless year? Most people, when you say, how fruitless was that year? You go like, well, you know what? 
I had, I, w when I came into the year, I had $27 in my account. When I left that year, I was minus 30. So yeah, it was fruitless, you know. I ended up with, <laughs> with <laughs> less money. But let me just, uh, uh, let me just show you what Jesus said a fruitless life was. Luke chapter 12, verse 16 through 21. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive, seemingly very fruitful. So this land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods that I've gained. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared for yourself? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Rich toward God. The man living towards self is the man who lives wasted lives, wasted life, wasted years. Wasted moments, but the, the person who says this moment is for you, God, that moment will never be wasted, but will echo throughout all eternity, and you will even experience those moments, or the benefit of them, in time to come throughout all eternity. So never measure fruitless years only in terms of earthly gain. And material, material accumulation. Because here is the man who thought that he was extremely fruitful. But in God's eyes, he was totally fruitless. And God says, if your life has been fruitless, if you repent like he told them to during the time of Joel, he will cause you also to see your wasted years restored. This man lived thinking his life was not wasted because of his personal gains. But that was a deception. That was the actual lie. The opposite was true for him. <laughs> People who think their lives have been most wasted will find out that they possibly their lives would be least wasted of all. And some people who think that their lives weren't wasted at all will one day possibly find out that every day of their lives were wasted. We don't live. This is not our goal in life is not the end of this. Our goal in life is the beginning of the next, right? So we live toward that. Where, where crowns are handed out, there are seven crowns, we've, we've covered those. But we get to take that crown that we are given and we get to bring it to the feet of Jesus. And again, make sure that no man will ever share his glory with him because there's nothing actually that came from my life that he didn't accomplish through me, right? So the question is, are you a conduit? Are you a willing vessel living to, rich toward God and not rich toward self? So the person who does, who does nothing for the Lord is the person who is truly wasting their lives. He is the person who, who welcomes locusts just to ravage everything. 
That's the person who has nothing to show. Empty hands before God. The person who does nothing for the Lord has no harvest at all. However, no matter what the economy may look like, your years can be extremely fruitful. Paul's was in a prison. That wasn't a wasted moment. There wasn't one martyr who had a wasted moment as they hung upon, whether it be upside down cross or on a stake. Not one. Because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. So my call to you today is as Joel, repent if you are serving self and not God. This is the time to repent and God will restore all the wasted years of your life. Thank you, God, that we again have this opportunity to turn around everything that has been wasted. I must also say this. <clears throat> Did you know that people will read a scripture like, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. They read a scripture like that and they'll go like, Okay, well, for by grace I've been saved through faith. Not of myself. I mean, I didn't do anything. I didn't become good. Or but that's not really what that verse is saying. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, Neither grace, neither salvation, and neither faith was any of your doing. You didn't come up with that. You didn't design it. You didn't author it. He is the author and the finisher of the, all, the whole portion, the whole gift. He says, this is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. So when you have faith to believe, it was a faith given to you by God. He gave you faith so you can turn and Trust in Christ. <laughs> but just as people may see that incorrectly, they don't realize that it, the grace is the gift, salvation is a gift, and the faith they have to believe with is a gift. So also, people miss repentance. They go like, no, your salvation doesn't hang on your repentance, because if it did, then your salvation hangs on your work of repentance. But family, you realize the Bible calls repentance a gift. Just as faith is a gift, you cannot repent, Esau. You cannot repent even if you seek it with tears. There's a possibility you cannot find it. Because the apostles were preaching the gospel, and some of in Acts and some of the Gentiles heard them preach the gospel, and the Gentiles turned and believed, and the apostles went, we see now that God is offering the gift of repentance to the Gentiles also, and not just to the Jew. It was a gift, and it is a gift today. Therefore, if you are able to repent for any of these, do it now. Do it immediately. It's a gift given you where you can say, God, I repent from serving self instead of serving you. I turn from serving self, and now I serve you with my whole life, wanting to ensure that my years aren't wasted like that rich young ruler. Number three, the years the locusts have eaten in your life are the years of idleness. 
the years of idleness. It's really the years of unfaithfulness. Because I realize when I'm idle, I'm actually really being unfaithful. When, when, I'm, when I have idle hands, I am working for myself poverty in my future. That's what the Bible promises. You see, <clears throat> when you filter all of your thoughts through scriptures, you can have a scriptural worldview, and you should, because anything other than a scriptural worldview is very, very devastating. Ideas have consequences, and we need to teach our children that. Ideas have consequences. My son's worldview is my responsibility to steward over. I have to mold and make the way my son sees the world and how he sees life. You see, um, anthropology is, is to be understood in, in, in the child's life. He needs to understand who he is, a fallen human being in need of God's grace for salvation, right? He needs to realize that, that he was born into a fallen world where he has blind eyes, deaf ears, and a heart that cannot respond to God. He needs to know this. And that's why learning the Old Testament is so important because the Old Testament um, is what creates or molds a conscience. Because your conscience accuses you or excuses you in comparison to the highest truth you've ever been exposed to. And so if you have been exposed to the Old Testament, you're exposed to a holy God that will not stand for anything but perfection before Him. And suddenly your conscience now holds you accountable. It accuses you or excuses you based on what you know about a holy and perfect God who cannot, because it's just, he cannot let sin pass by without punishing it 100% and completely. So now, if a child knows this, his conscience holds him accountable before a holy God. So what I'm saying is that when my son reads the scriptures, and, and I, I'm a, I still have to teach him the scripture, but when he reads the scripture about idle hands leads a man to poverty, he needs to realize when he's been idle that he deserves the poverty he may be in, you know. That's, that's God's law. It's not going to be overturned because somebody else is going to pay higher taxes or whatever the case may be. No, no, your poverty has to fall upon the one with idle hands. If the man doesn't work, he shall not eat. This is the law of God, and, and we, we need to make sure that our children have scriptural worldviews. Scriptural worldviews. Can you imagine universal income? How anti-scriptural that has to be? So here we, here we have years the locusts have eaten are years of idleness. Years of idleness. So we have to realize when we are idle, we are allowing locusts just to swarm through our lives, raid our lives, because we will not take responsibility. And in this context, if you think about it, the sower sows the word. That's an action. <laughs> the believer shines as a light in a dark world. That's actually doing something, shining. The servant faithfully stewards over what? The talents he's been given so that there's an increase. That's an action. The ambassador of Christ or ambassador of heaven represents God's kingdom. That's that's an action. That's a duty. The disciple goes into all the known world, and he's known world, and shares the gospel where he's at. 
making disciples and teaching them to obey Christ's commands. That's an action. The father raises his children faithfully to fear God. He raises his children faithfully, not how to accumulate in this life. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's not the priority. The father raises his children faithfully to fear the God of scriptures alone. That's an action. The husband loves his wife. How? As Christ loved the church. That's, that's a tall order. That's an action. That's a responsibility. The older women in the church raise the younger women in the church. This is an action that requires faithfulness. All of these require faithfulness. And I just touched the tip of the iceberg. But years of idleness or years of being irresponsible with what has been given us as stewards... Years of not remaining faithful over those things results in years that the locusts will eat from us. Therefore today, like Joel, I'm calling myself and us as a congregation to repent from idleness. Repent from idleness. And let's repent and turn towards responsibility before God. Faithfulness toward God. You know, I think there's a resurgence of this whole concept amongst at least young men in the United States across the board. And that is their hunger for somebody to tell them it's time to become responsible. You know why? Because meaninglessness kills people. Meaninglessness is, is, is devastating. People who, so meaninglessness is what takes away from a person dignity. Like, like Work actually is what help, what gives you dignity, right? Yeah. It's like you have accomplished, you have achieved, you have been faithful, you get up in the morning, you go to bed early at night, you work and you succeed because you apply yourself, you do whatever you do in diligence. This is where you find dignity from. You don't find dignity because I blow smoke at you on Facebook. <laughs> you know, you don't, let me say it the other way around. You don't lose dignity because I disagree with you on Facebook. Whoever that may be. <laughs> Such a timely word. I know you're watching. <laughs> your dignity doesn't hang on what I think of your thoughts on Facebook. Even though they may stink. It doesn't matter. Your dignity hangs on the fact that you are a diligent hard worker. And that you are a productive individual. Faithful before God. Who can take that from you? Who can take dignity from you if this is what you're out to accomplish? You see, the person with the most responsibilities in life is the person with the most meaningful life in comparison to the person with zero responsibilities in life, absolutely nothing, lives in mom's basement, just turned 53, thinking about moving out in about 10 years' time. This person right here with absolutely zero responsibilities has the meaning, most meaningless life. You see, the difference between those is responsibility. And somebody goes, well, if God, if God already decided before the foundations of the earth whom he was going to justify, which is what he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. 
knows he justified, he also glorifies, then why must I even go and share the gospel? I mean, really, why must... Have you ever thought about the fact that maybe it's because God asked you? Number two, have you ever thought about the fact that you were honored and privileged by God's design where he could have done, he could have done whatever he wanted to do outside of you? He saved Paul and nobody was involved. He could have done whatever he wanted to do and save absolutely everybody without you and me. But in his mercy, his grace, and his foreknowledge, he said, you know what? I'm going to put you there as part of my plan so you too can one day walk into heaven knowing the dignity of having given yourself to a duty, a responsibility that I commissioned you with. And you too can now be a part and have a part in all of this beautiful, most powerful plan of salvation in humanity. Now you can also walk into heaven and receive a crown. You see, God is so good that He thought about us even at that level. Right? So today, you know, I'm calling us all to repent from idleness. Repent from irresponsibility because it, it, it really, irresponsibility is there to take away from you, not to add to you. So up until this point, we have only considered New Testament portions to identify, um, you know, the years that the locusts have eaten. But I want to show you in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, it says, For whatever was written in earlier times, speaking about the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. Everything we see in the Old Testament is to teach us. It really trains us about who God is and who man is. Anthropology, theology. <laughs> okay, so we, we study the Old Testament because it says, for whatever was written in the earlier times, was written for our instruction, so we are instructed by it, formed by it, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. These stories of the old men or men of old bring hope to us. So let's reach into the Old Testament and see those who experienced barren years, their wasted years and how God restored them. So number four, years that God is willing to restore, lost years that God is willing to restore, wasted years God is willing to restore are years of testing. This is so key. Please tune in and stay tuned. Those wasted years that God is willing to restore are years of testing. Job loses his entire estate. He loses all of his crop, his property. He burns down everything, all of his children. He loses all of them. Everything he ever worked for, everything he ever held dear. But Job's loss came not because he was unregenerate, as we discussed. Not because... He was fruitless or faithless, not because he was idle, but this loss he experienced came as a test to see if he would turn his back on God. However, Job, of course, as we know, responded by remaining faithful to God. God restored the years Job had labored for, but he restored them many times over and over and over as Job had remained faithful, even when he had limited understanding of why he lost it all in the first place. He didn't get it. He didn't know why. 
He remained faithful even though he had limited understanding. This is what God's called us to. So you may have gone through a season of loss just like Job and you did not understand as to why. This is not a time to become unfaithful when you look in your past and you say, well, God, why me? Why, why did I have to go through that? Why me? I don't understand, but this is not a time to become unfaithful. This is a time to remain more faithful than ever before. So allow God to restore the years that the canker worm has stolen. Restore the years that the locusts have eaten. By doing what? By repenting from any possible unfaithfulness toward God because of it. By repenting from any possible unfaithfulness to God because of it. God is sovereign. Don't ever stop believing in that. Rest your head on the, so on the pillow of God's sovereignty every day of your life. You sleep on that. You rest in that. You rely in that. You fall upon that. That pillow called the sovereignty of God. Let Him be God. Let Him be God. And know He will restore to you. If it's not in this life, it'll be in the life to come. Years that God is willing to restore are also years of training. So we see in Job's position or Job's life, it was years of testing. Now we're going to see years of training also seem to be years of loss, but God is willing to restore it. God restored jo Joseph. I mean, uh, J Job. Now, jo Joseph was the other one. I didn't have time to put it in here, so by the way. But throughout the Old Testament, there are so many people where you see God restores them at the end. God restores them at the end. God restores them at the end, like Joseph. But here we see God, God is willing to restore um, years of training. Here's Moses, the prince of Egypt. Think about it. He's raised in the palace of, of Pharaoh at the time. I mean, he's the up-and-coming guy, you know. And um, you know what happens. He kills a man. He has to run, flee for his life. And where does he flee to? A desert. Midian. And he's there for 40 years in this desert. Wasted years. Seemingly wasted years. But these aren't wasted. Why? Because they're years of training. But if you are unfaithful and you turn your back on God and you become idle and you become fruitless and you fail the, the test or you fail the fact that this is a train, of course, then those years aren't recovered to you. But here is a faithful man 40 years later and see how God turned everything around. His years of training were restored to him, all 40 of them. Because he led the children of Israel for 40 years. So allow God to restore your years that have been eaten by the locusts. How? By repenting for any possible unwillingness toward the Lord. Can you, can you see how Moses actually represents the person who's, who's actually unwilling, <laughs> but then had to repent from it? He says, God, no, not me. I mean, I'll even come up with problems. I'll come up with an excuse. Let me think. Speech impediment. Take my brother. Take my brother, I don't speak well. That's not really the case, though. That wasn't what that meant. But he didn't want to. This is what we know. He wanted his brother Aaron instead to take that responsibility. But then he repents and he goes because he becomes willing. If you go through years of testing like Job, 
Repent from any possible unfaithfulness to God because of your loss. If you are going through training like Moses, repent from any possible unwillingness toward God, and you'll see Him restore you. And finally, number six, years God is willing to restore are years of rebellion. Oh, this is huge. Years of rebellion. Because I listen to all the training and I listen to all the, you know, the testing. And I'm like, yeah, what about me? I was rebellious. <laughs> it's just straight up rebellious. What about me? I lost so many years because of it. But you see, God gives us this wonderful example of the prodigal son wasting years on wild living. Years. Yet, his loss came not as a result of any of those great things, but as a result of his rebellion. And then the father restores him and puts on a ring, puts a ring on his finger and kills a fatted calf just for him. Why? Because he repented. He repented. So today, I want to encourage you to allow God to restore your years that have been eaten by the locusts. How? By repenting from a rebellion against the father. All rebellion is rebellion against the father. All sin is sin against God. We rebel against God the Father when we dismiss His Word. Let me just say that again. We rebel against God the Father when we trivialize Scriptures. When we submit ourselves to a Scripture, we are submitting ourselves to God. When we embrace Scripture, we are embracing God. When we celebrate the Scriptures, we are celebrating God. When we bow before the Scriptures, we are bowing and submitting ourselves before God. There is no possible way, and this is something that, that, that is so ingrained in this culture where you can actually love Jesus and despise scriptures. Absolutely. Oh, oh, are you saying I'm not a Christian? Yes. <laughs> despising the word of the Lord is despising the Lord of the Bible and you are loving the Jesus of your mind and go ahead and enjoy that. But the Jesus of the Bible is the one you will face off with one day. That's the Jesus. How do you know that you aren't serving a false Jesus unless it is the Jesus that you find in scriptures? How do you know your Jesus isn't completely false? You couldn't know. Well, I know that I know that I know. Well, that is subjective, isn't it? That is so subjective. And then and isn't that where all false religions stem from? Subjectivity? But rather we, no, we repent before the objective truth that comes to us, the Word of God. Nothing more, nothing less. That's why it's in a canon. No, no, no. And we don't read into it. We pull out of it. The literal meaning, unless stated otherwise. Amen. Let's all close our eyes and bow our heads for a moment.